in the midst of a series that's designed to focus our attention on issues concerning marriage and the family. And uh, while we were away last week, I ran across an article that I think is relevant for what we've been discussing. The title of the article was, Can the Church Be the Glue? Can Church Be the Glue That Holds Married Couples Together? It says, maybe it does take divine intervention to keep a marriage together. A new marriage study now suggests. Dr. Alan Booth, professor of sociology, human development at Penn State University, says that happy couples report active involvement in their churches more often than those who are struggling. When married couples need the support of their church most during times of marital stress, they often withdraw from organized religions. It says, I think they're afraid that the church will look askance at their deteriorating marriage. Churches push family togetherness and couples withdraw when their marriages begin to fall apart. He's been doing the study over a period of time since 1980 and has studied almost 2,100 couples. And he contributes to, and he, and he talks about what, what aspects of uh, the relationship contributes to or detracts from marital stability. He goes on to say this. He said that um, no one church seems to be doing a better job than any of the others or even helping couples. A few ministers have asked for a copy of the study after they had read about the report. He says, while none ask for Booth's advice on how their churches might evolve to help couples in crisis, he says that uh, they had plenty of ideas with one simple solution. He says churches should become more involved in the secular aspects of people's lives, concentrating on areas that tend to break up marriage, such as spousal abuse, alcohol addiction, or financial troubles. And you know, and I couldn't agree more, because if we're going to spend some time together, I would imagine that each person that comes here wants this time to be spent in a very relevant way, in a way that could change lives for the better. And, and, and I agree with that. I mean, let's face it, if we're not going to be able to help one another or contribute to one another in the areas of our life where we're having difficulties, then it defeats the whole purpose of getting together. And I think it's sad. It's a sad statement to churches in general that people feel like when they're having problems in their life, the last place that they want to go is to a church because the people there will tend to judge them for having problems. And I, I don't know about you, but I thought that was kind of ironic and sad in a lot of ways because this is where we're supposed to come to be able to help one another not to condemn and to judge and to ridicule each other but to say if you're having a problem let us help you with that and we'll share one another's burdens and, and we'll mourn when we mourn and rejoice when we rejoice and that's the whole purpose and the function of it and frankly it gets me a little bit aggravated to say the least when we feel like we can't show up because we're having a problem in our life we all have problems and we need to face them, as Ginger was saying, we need to face them face to face. When disaster comes our way, we need to face it face to face. You can't run from it, you can't hide from it, you can't stick your head in the ground and hope that it goes away because it's not going to go away. And that's precisely why over the last several weeks we've been dealing with the financial problems of life that each one of us have to go through and talking specifically about how to address those areas in a way that will help to change our lives for the better. I guarantee you that if you apply the principles that we've been discussing and we don't let money control our life, the reality of all of that will be a higher quality of life for our marriages as well as for those of us individually who are struggling in this area of life. You know, God is a relevant God and he wants to deal with us and meet us exactly where we are. And you know, it's amazing to me how so many of us feel like we have to change our life and to clean things up before we can come to God. He says, come to me just as you are. You know, it was while we were sinners that God demonstrated his love and that he sent Christ to die for us. It's exactly the way that we are. And I would hope that everyone that comes here or everyone that hears this would feel encouraged by the fact that we need to come together if we're having a problem to own up to it to say, I need help in this area. And is there anybody out there with experience or wisdom that can help us resolve this problem? Because it's tearing our marriage apart and it's tearing our family apart. And that's exactly what we're here to discuss. 
were seven fundamental principles that we began to look at the last time that we were together, or actually the last two times. Seven fundamental financial principles that when applied, and there's the key, when you apply it, you'll have some benefit. There's nothing more frustrating to me, and I'm sure to you as well, to be able to share wisdom and counsel with an individual who say that, or the people that say they want help, you share with them the counsel that they need to hear, and then they don't do a thing about it after they hear it. And then they wonder why they're still having the same problems. There's nothing more frustrating than that. And so what we're going to do is take a look at these. The first week we got together in part one, and there's a three, this is a, ended up being a three-part series, but and the first part was that we talked about how necessary it was. The first financial principle that we need to apply in our life is honoring the Lord first. We talked how critical this was and that everything flows through this. Honor God first. Put Him first in everything that we do. You know, the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that the second one is we love one another as we love ourselves. Those are the two greatest commandments, and everything in the Bible is summarized in those two statements, according to Jesus. And so what he's saying is that God comes first. And there's no way that you can demonstrate that God is first in your life more than giving back to Him as a recognition that everything that you have and everything that you're able to do comes as a blessing from God. Our ability to make money is a blessing from God. The wealth that he gives us is a blessing from his hand. And what we do is, when we recognize that, the first thing that you do is you'll write a check. Now, here's the test, and I thought about this, and I thought, well, gee, this is really personal, isn't it? But that's too bad, that's why we're here. So I thought, you know what? If you're serious about getting things right in your financial life, this will be true of your life. This is, what, January 21st. This is the third week of this year. If you've been paid three times, then if you're serious about getting right with God, then you've already written three checks to God. If you've been paid twice, you've written tw two. If you've been paid once, you've, you've written one. And if you get paid once a month next week, you'll write it then. Now, what the percentage is, I could care less, and, and neither does God, really, because he's talking about it's a matter of sacrifice from our heart. But as we'll talk a little bit later, it's always good to come up with a percentage because then you can budget it accordingly. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But if you're serious about getting right with God, then you've already done that, and you know exactly what we're talking about. Now, if you haven't done that, then you feel real bad because you're the people I've been yelling at that doesn't apply anything that they hear. So you're feeling a little guilty about it right about now, and you're thinking, how can we get out of this, and is he going to go on to number two? Yes, I will. <laughs> so anyway, but th I mean, that's the way that it is, right? Okay, number two. Second thing we talked about was, not only do we honor the Lord first, but the second thing is, is that we'll stay out of debt. I am amazed at how continually we are bombarded by this particular fact in our culture. I walked into the bank last week, and I was going into the bank to make a deposit, and there was ketchup bottles lined up all along the front of the bank. And I was like, you know, what, do I serve lunch here now? I know it's slow. The line's a little bit slow, but it's like, okay. And so I asked him, I said, what, what is this? What are the ketchup bottles for? Oh, it's our new promotion. Oh, and it is what? Ketchup on all your debts. Ketchup on all your bills. Ketchup. Ketchup. Get it? There you go. I said the same thing. Oh, gee. What do you mean ketchup? You know, ketchup on all your bills, because most people are behind on their bills. And the way that they catch up on it is, guess how you catch up on your bills? You take out a loan. That's what you do. You, well, it's amazing to me. It's amazing what you'll read on an airplane, too, when you, when you don't have anything else to do. But I was reading an article, and I'll mention to you a little bit later. But listen to this. This is, this is a couple that were having serious financial problems in their marriage. It says the pair had always, uh, had always had different spending habits or styles. Nancy liked the bargain shop, purchasing clothes at Goodwill and furniture at yard sales. Dan, by contrast, was a big spender. But Nancy was shocked to discover that her husband had accumulated more than $25,000 in credit card debt. 
She says he bought sporting goods and computer equipment. He says much of it paid for family expenses such as auto repairs, vacations, and presents for the kids. Wherever the money was going, Nancy was unaware of the growing debt. I had no idea how much money he had charged. Obviously, we weren't communicating very well. So that March, the couple refinanced their house. They lived back east. They took advantage of lower um, interest rates, and they increased their mortgage from $45,000 to $90,000 with a large chunk and the majority of it going to pay off all of their credit card bills. She said, I was extremely bitter and angry because of that. Hmm. Answer to all of our problems when we get in debt is we need to make more money. How many of you feel like if you made $342,000 this next coming year that that would solve all your problems? Amen. Pre preach it, brother. <laughs> See, I know. See, it's like, now we're paying attention. Now we're listening. You know, we got like a seven-point program. What are we talking about here? Facing possible bankruptcy and told that the queen will no longer bail her out. The free-spending Duchess of York tried to put the bad news behind her Thursday by what? Taking a vacation. <laughs> she flew from London to Washington first class, of course, with her two daughters. As she checked into the posh Four Seasons Hotel in our nation's capital, an American reporter shouted to her, Are you going to pay the bill? Which she declined to answer. Prince Andrew's estranged wife, who is now in Greenwich, Greenwich, Connecticut, on Saturday for a charity bash, was initially said to have run up debts of $1.5 million. But Thursday, the newspaper reported that she had actually overdrafts up to $4.5 million. Her mother-in-law, who happens to be the queen, has refused to bail her out again. Okay, I go on and on and on. Here's the good part. The Daily Mail estimated her expenditures last year at $988,000 and her income from cash from Andrew, book publishing ventures, and other sources was $342,000. Well, guess it didn't help her now, did it? All right, says, how did she do it? The Times of London gave some details. On a recent New York trip, must have gone to Nordstrom's, the paper said she spent $4,560 on shoes in 30 minutes, which is two pair at Nordstrom's. Um, <laughs> Just kidding, Nordstrom's. She spent $15,200 on clothes in one month last year and runs up over $6,000 in phone bills every three months and shells at $275 a whack for a haircut. All righty. Solution to the problem. And you know what's so hilarious about this article? This is the funniest part of all of it. You, I mean, the truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, I can't even make stuff like this up. It was right above, guess what it was right above? The daily super lotto numbers. <laughs> it was great. I was like, this is too good. Well, what's the point? The point is, it's a whole lot easier to get into debt than it is to get out. And the other point is, it's not a matter of how much money you make, but it's how much you're spending. And that's why the third issue that we talked about was we need to learn to be content with everything that we have. It's an issue of contentment here. It's obvious that there's a problem when you make $342,000 and you rack up $988,000 in bills, and there's an obvious problem when you spend $15,600 in clothes in one month. There's an obvious problem, and what's the problem? It's not that we don't make enough money. The problem is how we spend it. And that's a contentment issue, and it's critical that we realize that. We'll talk a little bit more as we go back and forth. So if you're not upset with me already, I guarantee you the next four things will get you excited. Specifically, item number four. All right, you ready for this? Now listen to me. Now, I see where this is coming. I see where we're going with this. And so what I want you to do is, I want you all right now, 
Just take one of those deep old cleansing breaths. All right? Number two, say a quick prayer. Oh, please, Lord, don't let me kill that man up there. That's my first one, and I'll be praying, Lord, don't let him kill me. And number two is, don't let me get so defensive I don't hear what he has to say. All right? And then number three, listen. There you go. All right, fundamental number four, if you want to get your financial life in, in order and you don't want money to control your life. Okay, number four. Depend, number four, depend on the husband or the father to provide for all of your needs. And I know some of you are thinking, do you even know what I'm dealing with here? And I'm saying, absolutely. So don't get all excited now. Just listen to me real carefully, okay? I, first of all, I, I realize, unfortunately, the fastest growing segment of our population in our country are those who find themselves single again. I realize that that's the truth. And I also dealt with that in our session that we talked about, so you want a divorce. Oh, really? Okay. But the reality of that is, is that of those who are single again that have children, 75% of those households are now headed up by single moms. All right? Please listen to me. I realize that that's a problem, and I realize that I want to try to be as sensitive as I can. And I think the church and we as individuals need to do whatever we can to help people that find themselves struggling in that situation. But that's not what I want to discuss. I need to make this point and make it as clearly as I can because what we're dealing with after the fact are the symptoms. And that's what our country has become famous for. We are a society that deals with the symptoms and we don't see the root problem. We need to see what causes these things so that we can deal with them on a level that we can make a difference. Single moms got a, a terrible plight, and I realize that, and we need to help them every way that we can. But what I want to do is I want to try to get to couples that are still intact. I want to get to a husband and a father and a wife and a mother and children that are still living together under one roof. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get across here, and we need to recognize that. And I want you to listen to me and listen to me as carefully as you can so you don't take this out of context. But I think it's time that somebody stood up and said, you know what, it's time that men assume the responsibility of providing for the essential needs of their wife and their children. And that's not a popular message, and I realize that. And some of you are sitting here thinking, but you know what, that's so outdated and it's not realistic, and on and on the arguments go. But I can't emphasize this enough. Men need to feel that they are accountable and responsible for the needs of their wives and their children. And, and the problem that we have is we're dealing with symptoms always in this country, and we need to deal with the root problem. The root problem is simply this. There are too many men who are irresponsible, and there are too many men who are shoving off the burden of providing for their wife and their children, and they're shoving them onto their wives' shoulders, and they're shoving them onto everybody else as if it's everyone else's responsibility. And the day has to come when we must stand up as men and say, you know what, I am responsible to meet the needs of my wife and my children. Nobody else but me. Not Uncle Sam, not 
not the church, not anybody else. If we run into a problem, great, then I'll need all the help that I can get. But the reality of what I'm saying is, is I have to assume that responsibility and say, you know what, I don't want anybody else to take care of my wife. I don't want anyone else to take care of my children. I want to be responsible before God to go out and work my butt off if I have to, to provide for their needs. Now listen to me. It's a contentment issue, and I'm talking about needs, I'm not talking about greeds, and I'm not talking about wants, and I'm not talking about desires. I'm talking about the basic essentials that my family needs, and that's food, shelter, and clothing, according to 1 Timothy 6, and with these things we should be content. We need to preach that message again. We need to understand that responsibility. It's sad to me to think about how, how ironic it is that we are pushing off our responsibilities on everyone else. And so when I'm saying if you want to not let money control your life anymore, as a husband and as a father, take control and say, you know what, I need to be responsible to meet my family's needs. It's sad and we need to recognize that. You know, I think the greatest disservice that's been done to women in our country has been by other women. And what I mean by that is this. Somewhere along the line, the women's movement said this. If you are just a wife and a mother, that you are somehow or another not as important to our society as if you're a career-oriented woman who's out there bringing home the bacon. And you know who perpetrated that on you? You did it to yourselves. <laughs> See, now, now, now just, I don't know, man. I'm treading as lightly as I can. And the man's over there yelling, Amen! Fragrant brother! Every woman in the world is looking for somebody right about now to take their, to vent upon. I'm glad it's you. Anyway, listen to me. Listen to this. Oh, this is, I, this is what I was telling you about. This is how desperate you get when you're on an airplane with nothing else to read. I've read everything else that I had, so I picked up a ladies' home journal. Yeah, now you're talking. But that's all right, though. I didn't care what anybody thought. I'm secure in my masculinity. I was looking for some cooking tips, actually. But I didn't find any. But this is what I did find. This article was entitled, For Women, the Toll is Financial as Well as Emotional. It was an article entitled, The Diary of a Divorce. So the end of Nancy's 10-year marriage has been a source of tremendous emotional upheaval. Since the breakup began, her feelings have run the gamut from anger and bitterness to sadness, remorse, and resignation. But that's only part of it. The financial impact of her divorce has been just as devastating. Her household income dropped by nearly 50%, and that means downsizing her lifestyle, perhaps even permanently. For while marriage is founded upon romance, divorce is rooted in money. As Nancy learned, splitting up means bargaining for property, dividing debts, budgeting cash flow, and planning for the financial future chore, chores for which many women find themselves unprepared. The lack of financial savvy has its price. According to the Center for Policy Research in Denver, women typically suffer a decline in their standing of living, living following a divorce, while men do not. As a safeguard against fiscal devastations, personal finance experts advise even happily married women to maintain some degree of financial independence, to be closely involved in budgeting and investing, to be aware of the family's assets and liabilities. It says, but even in this post-feminist era, era, many women ignore such advice, thinking that divorce happens in other families and not theirs. You know, and I think there's some sound counsel that's in there, but I also think that there's a danger. I think it's important, and we'll talk about this. I think every woman should be aware of the financial conditions of their household. I think she should understand what the assets are, what the liabilities are, so she's not surprised by, I didn't realize he racked up $25,000 in credit card debts. 
I think that, you know, women need to be involved in the planning and the budgeting and all those things, and, and those are all important things. But I also think there's a danger here, and the danger of this inference that's being mentioned in this, subject, in this article is, you know what, don't ever depend upon your husband to meet your needs. And I think that's the message that's been pr promoted loudly and clearly, and, and clearly, and I think that's where we'll run into a problem. Don't allow your husband to meet your needs because you can't count on him. You can't trust him. You can't depend upon him. So what we're doing is we're, we're teaching and preaching a nation of people to become independent of one another instead of being dependent upon one another. And if you think that that's wrong in what I'm saying, then we need to recognize 1 Corinthians 11, listen to what God has to say, 11, 11 through 12, he says this, In the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. It's critical that we understand something here. Listen to me. We need to depend upon one another, but we also need to understand what our roles are so that we can depend upon each other in the areas that God has designated for us to be responsible. That's why we need to know what a husband's responsibilities are. That's why we needed to know what a wife's responsibilities are. We dealt with all those on how to be a great wife or how to be a great husband. We need to recognize something here. We need to depend upon one another. I need my wife and my children to depend upon me. That's the way God has designed me as a man and as he has designed all of us as men. We need to recognize that our family depends upon us. And we also need to recognize that we depend upon our wives as wives and mothers in certain areas of our life, that we can depend upon them to fulfill their responsibilities before God. We need to recognize that. Too many men are neglecting this responsibility and they're pushing that, and they're pushing that burden onto their wives' shoulders. We need to take that responsibility back because that's ours, given to us by God. Now listen, I'm not saying that women shouldn't work. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, what I, want to, what I want to get across is something that's, uh, well, as clearly as I can. I believe, and my wife and I believe this, and we lived it, and we demonstrated it in the way that we lived. But we believe that not only should I be the person that's responsible to take care of our family, but I also believe that when our children were younger, and Linda agreed, that when they were preschool age, that she should stay home with our children. That's not saying women shouldn't work. But I'm just saying, and, and that's not uh, talking about the exceptional case and all those kind of things where maybe someone's unemployed or someone's hurt or somebody you know, has a disability of some sort. I'm talking about in the majority of cases, I believe, and we believed it to the point where we lived it, and that is while our children were younger, Linda stayed home with them and took care of them. She was there for them. Now, was there a sacrifice involved in that? Absolutely, because she was working and she made money. And she was making you know, decent money and so it was a question of, you know what, well, what's more important in our life? It's a question of priorities is really what it comes down to. And so we believe that it would be more important for her to stay home with our children while they're preschool age, to be there for them, to meet their needs, to discipline them, to instruct them, to raise them, to be available for them. Because I, I don't know, you can look at any study that you want, but I remember the Catholic Church when we grew up going to Catholic Church said, you give me a child up to the age of seven and we got him for life. Why did they say that? because those are the most formative years of education. Though it's where all of our character traits are built, and that's where our, all of our thinking processes are developed. And so it's it was important to us that we raised our children and we sacrificed the money that went along with it. 
And I know some of you are thinking, you know what, but, 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 we need to, but I need to work. I know that. I know that. And I've had conversations with people. And this is usually the way it goes. I'll have a, work, a, a mom who has little children at home, and she'll say, but I need to work. And you say, but why? Because don't you know how much our house payment is? Don't you know how much our car payments are? Don't you know how much our rent is? Don't you know how much our credit card bills are? Our furniture payments are? All of our debts are? Don't you know how much all those things are? And see, and I'll go back to the same thing that we struggle with, and that is, are we going to allow money to control our life, or are we going to allow money to be a tool that God gives us to use in a proper manner? See, what it all comes back down to is what? Debt. It all comes back to a question of, but we want these things. We want the car. We want the house. We want the clothes. We want to go on vacation. We want all these things. We want to take our family on a nice vacation. What are you saying? That you're going to sacrifice 51 other weeks of the year for a one-week vacation with your family? And you expect that to make up for not being with them the rest of the year? What are you trying to say? See, we don't challenge each other enough to think about things and to think them through. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. I'm here just to say, you know what? Some of you, your, your financial situation is destroying your marriage. It's destroying your family. It's, it's the, the tail wagging the dog. And you can't understand what the problem is and how to get control of it. And I'm trying to help you think things through and to say, listen, maybe it's a matter of the fact that you like too much stuff. You like things. And we decided that we weren't going to sacrifice what was important for more material things that we're going to wear out. And there was a sacrifice involved, and it's a priority system, but that's all right. That's the one that we chose. And I just challenge you to consider maybe the same approach. You know, it's interesting to me, and I want to, I want to quote something for you, because I know that there are some women who are working that feel like, you know, well, they don't have a choice, and, 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 and that's why we're going to have these financial series, um, and that's what the sign-up sheet was. And if you haven't signed up for it, there, there should be the forms in the back somewhere. Sign up, because it'll get in-depth on how to deal with it in a very practical manner. But I also realize there are a lot of women that work because they bought into the lie that that's an important way they can contribute to society. I like what Mrs. Bush had to say. She was addressing an all-women's college. You talk about a woman with guts. But there's a woman that understood the value of a family. And she had her priorities straight. And she addressed all these women who had just graduated from this all-women's college back east in the northeast. Here's what she had to say. She says, as important as your obligations as a doctor, a lawyer, a business leader will be, you are a human being first, and those human connections with spouses, with children, with friends are the most important investments that you will ever make in your lifetime. At the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. You will, however, regret time not spent with a husband, a child, a friend, and a parent. Whatever the era, whatever the times, one thing will never change. Fathers and mothers, if you have children, they must come first. Your success as a family, our success as a society, depends not on what happens in the White House, but what happens in your house. And I say amen. See, there's a myth, too. I don't know, ladies, if you ever sat to think about this, and this is just a fact. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I'm not saying anything like that. All I'm saying is this is the truth, that most women who work no matter what their job is, no matter if they're doing something that's comparable to what another man would do, you're not going to make as much money as a man will. 
That's just true. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's a fact. And the myth of a second income is hilarious because we sat down and figured out, you know what, when Linda stopped working, we really weren't giving up that much. We thought she was making a lot of money, but it turned out by the time we looked at what it cost her to work, by the time we looked at what it cost to have another vehicle, what the expenses were, what it cost for clothes, what it cost for you know, other necessities as far as being able to go to work, you have to have the right outfits, you have to go to lunch every day, and you have to have lunch, you have to get to work, you have the transportation costs, you've got all these things, and if you've got children, you've got child care that you have to take off of that. And on top of all of that, we have a government system that's destructive to families in the way that we get taxed. And so then you take all of that and you add it all together and you subtract all of it and you find out that, you know what, you're sacrificing being with your children for practically nothing. And the only thing the second income's doing for you is it's qualifying you to get in more debt. <laughs> right? Got two incomes. Great. We can borrow more. We can have more. We can do more. We can spend more. We can get more debt. Oh, so stupid. And though, although I must say this, I think we need to be more vocal with our elected officials and tell them we're sick and tired of their government tax structure and what's going on in Washington. All right? And I say that for this reason, because what's happening is, if we were not being taxed to death, you would not be in a position to feel like you have to send your wife out to work and let somebody else raise your children. And as it turns out, every article that I've ever studied, one in every three dollars that we make ends up going to Washington to support this big government machine that we got working there. And it's a philosophy of understanding. Listen to this. The United States didn't have an income tax until 1913, except during the Civil War. When enacted into law in 1913, income tax was sold to the American people as something that would affect, quote, only the rich. The bill contained a $5,000 exemption, meaning that only those who earned more than that amount would pay any taxes. All right, listen to this. Chris Cox of California, an expert on the income tax, said if the tax brackets had been adjusted for inflation between 1913 and now, today you would pay income tax only if you earned more than $82,000. We've been ripped off for a long period of time. And we've been led to believe that all these services that, we're, that, that we are getting for free are free. There's nothing free. And we're paying for it in so many different ways. And that's the root of the problem. See, we've we, we, we got to stop dealing with symptoms and we need to deal with the root problem. We need to let elected officials know that we're tired of supporting their careless spending techniques. That we're tired of big government that we want to be able to raise our families and do it in a way that's pleasing to God, that I want my wife to be able to stay home and raise my children instead of having government-sponsored child care programs popping up all over our country. We need to get things back to where they need to be so we can deal with the root issues in this country and stop with the smoke and mirrors that we hear all the time in administrations that are telling us what they're giving us and they're not giving us anything and they're taking it right out of your back pocket. They're destroying our families. We need to recognize that, but I don't know. That's going to be a tough fight, but it's one that's worth fighting. But I will tell you this. While we may not be able to control to a large degree what's happening to us in our state and, and, and on a national level as far as laws are concerned and tax codes, you can control how much money you spend in your own household. You can stay out of debt. You can become more content. You can honor God first. And you can depend upon the husband and the father to be the primary provider of the necessities of your home. Now, if you got, now when children are older and your wife wants to work or the wife wants to work, I say, great. You know what I say? Don't fall into the trap of, of counting on that income to provide for the necessities of life. If you want to take that money and save for something special, use it for a vacation, use it for something that you want to buy for the house, Use it for gifts that you want to give to your children. Use it for whatever you want, but don't depend upon that 
to meet your necessities in life. That's where we're falling into trouble. And that's why we have to, principle number five, we need to invest wisely for the future. Invest wisely for the future. You know, what's interesting, in the book of Genesis, we're told that Joseph told the people to go out and save seven years' worth of grain, to store it all up, because there's a day that was coming when there would be a famine. And so this Joseph principle of going out and making it while you can and saving it for when you need it in the future is one that most marriages can learn a lot by. We need to understand something, and that is from what I've seen, every economy that I've ever seen or been associated with has its seasons or its cycles. That's why anybody that's into any kind of investments will tell you, hey, there's a difference between short-term investment and long-term investment. Long-term investment, you just ride out the peaks and valleys. You're going to have good times and bad times. There's going to be ups and downs, and you don't have to panic or worry about it. And the same thing is true like even like in our real estate market. You've got people all panicking and all concerned because the market's down right now. Well, buying a house is a long-term investment. You don't have to worry about it, so you ride it out. It doesn't matter one way or the other whether your house is upside down right now or not. I mean, if you're living in it and it provides a necessity as far as shelter is concerned, then it's, it's serving a function or a purpose. But what we need to understand is we need to invest wisely for the future. In uh, Proverbs 10.5, it says, he who, gathers in summer, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. I like that. You know what's saying in simple language to me? Chuck, there's a time to go out and work hard and make money. There's a season there. Go out and make it while you can. But don't ever forget now, if you're out there and you're sleeping when you're supposed to be harvesting or you're not doing what you're supposed to do while it's time to be made, then you're going to have all kinds of problems. And invest that for the future. And not only is it, is it wrong. See, I'll give you an example. We're in the heating and air conditioning business, and a, a majority of what we do, we do a lot of stuff year-round, but there's a lot of seasonal work that's involved in it. And the biggest dilemma we deal with as a family is when it's summertime and it's hot is when we're the busiest in our business. But it's also when our children are out of school. And so we've got this dilemma that we struggle with every year. Well, it's the best time to take vacation with the children, but you know what? It's also the worst time to leave our business. You know, and trying to get across that, you know what? Not only would it be irresponsible for me to take a vacation if we're, if we're busy, and that's the typical cyclical thing that's going on, not only would it be irresponsible but it would be shameful to do it. It would be a disgrace before God to do it. Now, I'm not saying we don't take vacation or spend time with our children, but we have to find a way as a family to be able to meet that need in a way that isn't as expensive or costly to do it. Now, we all struggle with that. Every one of us do. There's smart times and there's, you know, and there's other foolish times to do certain things. And we looked and said, you know what? This vacation is going to cost us a fortune. Not just how much it's going to cost us to go somewhere, but all the lost revenue that I will miss out on generating for our business, and it's not even... Now, if we get a summer where it's slow, then it might be a good time to do something. See, so we have to take advantage of it, and every one of us have different situations, but we have to understand what God is saying. While you can make it, go and make it, because not always are you going to be able to make it, which means invest wisely and save for the future. Don't spend every penny that you get thinking that it's going to last forever because it doesn't. I don't care how much money you make. I know guys weren't making millions of dollars in professional athletics, but you know what? The reality of all of it was, hey, you better save as much as you can and be debt-free when you're out of ball because you're going to have to find something to do with your life and it's going to be a startup period and it's going to cost you a great amount of money to get started and moving in another direction. Save as much as you can and get out of debt. There's no more wiser counsel than that. 
We need to recognize that. And the reality of it is we live in a world that's constantly changing. Listen to this. This is according to the U.S. Department of Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics. In the last 15 years, half of all U.S. companies were restructured. More than 80,000 firms acquired or merged. At least 700,000 organizations sought bankruptcy protection. And 450,000 other businesses failed. Beyond the corporate picture, what happens when people lose their jobs? 48% change careers. And I will add to this that when you change careers, you also lose a large percentage of your earning power. All right? 10% start their own businesses. And having started our own business, you lose a lot of your earning power. And you better live off of savings and you better have some money. 33% go back to school, which is expensive. And when you're done, you lose a lot of your earning power. 16% married, 16% uh, that are married end up divorced. 90% equate the sense of loss to that of death, and even 5% go on and commit suicide. What's the point? The point is, when you can make it, make it, and when you make it, save it. Because whether it's going to be an injury, an accident, or unemployment, those are realities of life, and you need to be prepared for it. I love it. There was a guy, that, a friend of mine, who's a financial counselor. He had an older man come to him. This guy was 82 years old. 82 years old, came through and said, you know what, and he's been a, he was a pastor all his life, and he was, it was getting to the point where he had needed to retire, and he wanted to make sure he had enough money to carry him for the rest of his marriage. 82 years old, never made eight, more than $8,000 a year. Guy sat down, went through his portfolio, and you know how much money this guy had accumulated through investments and savings? $1.6 million. $1.6 million. This guy was blown away. He said, how did you do that? You never made more than $8,000 a year. He said, what's well, easy? You know, spend less than you make, invest it and save it for a long period of time. And that's how you end up with it. Stocks, bonds, certificates of deposit, and cash, this guy had accumulated $1.6 million, never made more than $8,000 a year. See, some of you go, oh, that's not possible. Well, how would you know? You haven't tried saving anything yet. Give it a shot. See what happens. It's the magic of compounding interest. It's amazing how that will just grow. And just invest it and save it for the future. And that also leads to principle number six, and that's live by a budget. Live by a budget. Some of you are going, what's that? Well, we got some work to do there. Live by a budget. You know, it's amazing to me how many people I talk to that are having financial problems say, well, uh, do you have a budget? No. Well, if you aim for nothing... You'll hit it every time. You need to have a budget. And what I would say to do is sit down as a couple and come up with a budget. That really is, I'd highly recommend it. Highly recommend it because it's part of making sure, I want to make sure my wife, if God takes me today, I want to make sure that she understands how to come up with a budget. What our expenses are, what our assets are, what income is, what life insurance that we have. All of those things she needs to know because I could die today and she wouldn't have a clue what's going on. But if we work on things together, then she has a good feel for what's going on. She understands the condition of her flocks. In Proverbs uh, chapter 27, it says this, Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. Saying, hey, know what's going on. So many of us don't have a clue what's going on. You need to sit down and have a budget. How are you going to spend the income that you're going to make? And we've already talked about it. Three things should be included in that. Number one is, unfortunately, taxes are a part of our budget, so you need to prepare for that. Number two is, we already talked about honoring God first, so that should be part of your budget and giving. And the third thing is savings. Those, those three things have to be part of your budget. 
And then the necessities. Shelter, clothing, and food have to be part of your budget. I mean, those are necessities that you don't have, they're not, you know, they're not optional. But you need to know what's going on. Sit down. I mean, the biggest problems that Linda and I had early in our marriage were that, you know what, it was like her philosophy was, and it was my fault because we never sat down and discussed it, but it was like, how could we be out of money because I still got a lot of checks in my checkbook? You know, and we all know that joke, and we've all heard that before. But here's what we would do. I would sit down, and I would make so, put so much deposit in our account because we knew all the house payments coming up, insurance payments were coming up, things were coming up. A lot of stuff comes up once a year. You know, insurance payments, property taxes, things like that. Well, you have to be setting that aside as you go along yearly, put it in a savings account so you have it to pay it. Duh. Anyway, so what we would do is I'd put this money in our, in our checking account. We had one checking account. Well, she'd go out and she'd go grocery shopping and buy clothes and other things that we needed. That was always it, but we needed and so we did need it. But the problem was, I also needed to make the house payment at the end of the month. So by the time we got to the end of the month, I'm looking and going, where'd the house payment money go? Oh, it's gone. Where is it? We ate it. <laughs> Great. Now what are we going to do? So we had to come up with a whole new system. We just came up with a real simple system. That was, we have two checking accounts. We sit down and we do a budget together. She knows what she's responsible for. Money goes into that account to meet those needs. I know what I'm responsible for at the end of each month to pay the house payment and all the bills and insurance and all that kind of stuff. And I put it aside and we've got it. And you know what? It's great. She knows what her, her parameters are. I know what my parameters are. There's freedom in a budget. There's freedom in it. We don't argue and fight about it anymore because we know she knows what she's responsible for. I know what I'm responsible for. And we're not, we're not disputing it anymore. We used to go at it all the time because of that. And how simple and stupid it is just to come up with a simple little program like that to bring about marital bliss. And honey, haven't you been happily married with me? <laughs> ah. She is. She's just bashful. <laughs> she's shy. But I know she is. All right. Anyway, live by budget. Number seven. Last thing. We'll close on this. Seven principles. Here's number seven. And this is going to sound kind of stupid <laughs> after all of this, but principle number seven, stop worrying about material things. Stop worrying about material things. In Matthew 6, I love it because, you know, it talks about worry, it talks about material things, it talks about all these things. And you know what? And what's wonderful is, Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life as to what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink nor your body as to what you're going to put on. He says, isn't a life more than than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't there more to life, the quality of life, than worrying about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He says, are you not worth much more than they? You know, we're on, we were away for the weekend, or last week, and um, we're sitting there and overlooking a beach, and there are all these pelicans. And man, these, and these things were just diving into the water all day long. Just you see them circling, and all of a sudden they just go, meow, boom. I was waiting for one of them to break their neck, you know. I was like, but they never did. And I thought, you know what, this passage came back to me and says, look at this. Look at these stupid pelicans. And they're the dumbest, ugliest, stupidest looking thing you ever see in your life. Except, of course, if you love birds. <laughs> but it was like, you know what, I thought, here's God providing for them. He's providing for them. He's meeting their needs. And how so many of us get so hung up. And God says, don't look around you at what other people have or what you think you don't have. Don't look behind you at what things used to be and how it used to be and the job you used to have and the money you used to have and the trips you used to go on and the car you used to drive and all that stuff. Don't look behind you. Don't look around you. But you know what the principle is? He says, but look up. 
look up and see the hand of God providing for your needs. It's a contentment issue again, but the principle is look up. You know, David looked back in his life in Psalm 37, 25, and he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. Seven principles. If you apply them, they'll change your life. If you need more details on how to apply them, there's sign-ups in the back, and we'll call you and let you know how to set things up because some people don't know how to do a budget. Some people, you know, you've never done it before. What's amazing to me, I had one of my friends come to me one time, and he said, Chuck, I'm in a financial mess. I said, well, let me look and see what's going on. I said, write down all your bills, write down all your assets, write down everything. So he writes, that's knowing the condition. Where are we right now so we know what to do? So he writes all this stuff down. And he writes down all these debts that he had, all these, you know, the restructuring loans and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, what the cash flow was and what a mess. The guy was in a mess. And after we were done and we were talking a little bit and, and kind of came up with a game plan, I said, well, let me, let me ask you something. What was your degree in college? Swear. Finance. As God is my witness, it was finance. You know, and I started to real, realize something. That we need to be educated. But we need to be educated on what God has to say about finances. Because only God's truth will set us free. You apply these things... And it's going to change your marriage, I'll guarantee you. It'll change your life if you're single. It'll change your life like you've never seen anything change. But you have to apply it. If you don't apply it, then you just wasted your time. Let's close in prayer. Oh, oh, by the way, next week, we're going to talk about how to become a great lover. All right. And you don't even need money. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for these truths. May we apply them in our life, and as we do, and we see change, and we are freed from some of the bondage that we've experienced, may we give you all the praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen.